My name's Kendra Houseman from Out of the Shadows, and you're about to listen to a series of interviews that took place over nine months. I want to know what life would be like for a child that had been through domestic abuse, parental mental health, poverty, and exploitation, to name a few. What would happen if we created a team, an army almost, to support that child? 28 people were interviewed, all with the same question in mind. What could have been different for child B? You're about to listen to Blondie's People. So follow us on our journey where I will speak to everyone from George the Poet to some of my good friends as we discover what it takes to become one of Blondie's people. Within these episodes, you will find answers, you will find guidance, and most of all, you will find an insight to a world that many do not know. There's a trigger warning for some of these episodes, and some of them are not child-friendly. We're going to talk about things that are very, very raw and real. So kick back and get ready for a journey, a journey you will not forget. Welcome to Blondie's People. Welcome to episode 26 of Blondie's People. And we're going to speak to uh, Dr. Carlin Furman, who, where do you start? She's changed the way that safeguarding is conducted within the UK. She specialises and examines contextual safeguarding and looks at spaces and places rather than just the, the child that is at risk. Her her work, if it had been around when Blondie was a child, may have changed the exploitation that took place. So get get comfy, put your feet up and listen. Take note. It's time to make change. Yep. Okay. <laughs> My name's Kendra Houseman and these interviews are for Blondie's people. People that would be aspiring to work with now but people that had been there for Blondie when she was younger would have had an impact. Today's guest is is on fire and is blowing me away a little bit and has made me quite nervous because we actually have the queen of child protection here. She doesn't like that. Who are you and what are you doing here? Hi my name's Carleen Furman and I run the contextual safeguarding research program at the University of Bedfordshire. Right, for those people that wouldn't know what we're talking about, what is contextual safeguarding? So contextual safeguarding is a way of thinking about how we do child protection, which tries to um, think about the places and spaces where harm occurs when you're a teenager, friendship groups, public places, schools, those types of settings, social media platforms, thinks about how can the child protection system better assess and intervene with those places given that it was really designed to assess and intervene with families. And I think contextual safeguarding is something that people hear, they hear the words, but they don't either know what it is or they don't apply it, okay? So we're gonna use the example of when I was younger, and I've tried to think of the best example, but this is it. When I was younger, there was a, a building being built, there was a hut with a security guard, and any young person could go in there and smoke weed or drink, but it didn't matter what security guard was there, it didn't matter, you could just go in there. When I was 14, I stole, um, I stole some stuff from there and I tried to get away. The man caught me and a sexual assault took place. The man got arrested or he got in trouble with the police. I don't know what happened. My family got um, social services. And here's something I didn't add when I said this before. They asked my mum why she wasn't keeping me safe. My mum had no idea where this hut existed. And then the young people continued to access the hut with more security guards there, more assaults took place. You talk about the child, uh, the woman in the stairwell, which is kind of comparison. So can you explain to us about that? 
Yeah, so when um, I was first designing the idea of contextual safeguarding, it was built on a number of cases I reviewed where children had come to harm outside their family homes. And one of them was a young woman <coughs> who was uh, sexually assaulted on a stairwell years, uh, with no real intervention on the stairwell. Um, and so there was really a need to think about how we intervened in the stairwell rather than constantly identifying each child found on the stairwell. But that yeah. never really seemed to occur. When we look at child protection, people won't like when we say this because I have said to it before, I talk about your work a lot, and you say that child protection needs to change. So why? Why does child protection need to change? Well, I think the issue we have is that we're working with a system, a child protection system. Uh, the legislation for that was written in 1989. And at that time, the types of harm that we're talking about weren't in the minds of the designers. They were thinking about children who were coming to harm within the family home or as a result of parenting. <coughs> and so while the child protection system, the definition of abuse within it, harm within it would include all of these other types of harm that we've been talking about, all the legislative kind of tools and the direction of the guidance that was built around it is around the assessment of parenting. So as you said in your case, an assault happens in a school, in a public place, on a social media platform, and the response would be to assess the extent to which that was the result of parenting, yeah. whether any work could be done to improve how that child was being parented in order to protect them from that happening again, which feels really odd. It doesn't feel like that's common sense. How could you parent a child to not be assaulted on the bus? But um, it, it's a kind of a conflation of this idea that if something goes wrong for a child, it's probably because of the way they're being raised, yeah. which is a kind of general mantra that we hear and the like legislative design of the system which is that you proceed against the parents so the ultimate sanction in a, in a child protection system is that your ch children are removed from your care so that would be a punishment for the parent and an attempt to protect that child by removing them from the parent because that's thought to be the source of harm um, you that trajectory doesn't work um, something like criminal exploitation unless the child's being criminally exploited by their parents then yeah. removing them from their parents doesn't reduce the risk of criminal exploitation so this, the way the system is designed is really to target parenting and for a number of these issues that won't be relevant or at least it won't be sufficient so even if there are issues in the family home just dealing with those won't take the drug debt off the child's head won't make school a safe place for them you'd need to look at the environments or groups that were creating that risk as well as the parenting the, the problem i find is um i don't think a lot of people understand how exploitation works or gangs work so when um i was younger i know boys would go and look for clean skins they would go and look for people that were in completely functional families they weren't looking for broken families and i think that's where people don't quite understand it, is that every child is at risk of exploitation there's no child that's immune to it you know exploitation isn't isn't care what race or what class you are and i think that's where people get confused they think it's single parent families broken homes and it's not always like that is it no it's really complicated and there'll be a whole range of things that increase someone's vulnerability i mean in terms of contextual safeguarding what we will encourage people to think about is using um, kind of ideas of situational crime prevention that have been around for a long time you know for an assault to happen you need a child to be assaulted you need someone that's going to assault them 
and you need a situation to arise in which they can be accessed. Now, for some children, that situation is a vulnerability within the home. Say yeah. there's domestic abuse at home, so they're running away from home all the time to get away from that, and they're in public spaces where they're vulnerable and exposed at late at night. So that's the situation that's being created. In other situations, it will be like what you said. The situation is, is that they are in a school environment where everyone thinks there's no no need to discuss these issues. Everybody's safe, but we don't have these issues around here. Um, they're in a situation where there's no professional eyes on them. No one would even notice anything was going wrong. The family wouldn't really know a professional network to talk to. It's not in their lives. So that's then is it that situation is exploited by somebody. So there are a range of ways in which you can see a situation emerge in which a child can be vulnerable. You need a context to facilitate that connection whether that's a child who has other vulnerabilities or a child that doesn't what we've tended to do is try to target the child's vulnerability to keep them safe and not the situation that the child is in and in contextual safeguarding what we're trying to do is to encourage people to target the situation as and when it's needed but fixing the child doesn't fix the situation um, and that's the scary thing for people because it feels easier to deal with this one child that's in front of you yeah. than this bigger situation that feels out of your control and way bigger than you as an individual practitioner, which is why it needs system change. You couldn't train a practitioner to do contextual safeguarding. You need to train a system to do contextual safeguarding. There are things that an individual practitioner can absolutely do on their own. And we run, we issue loads of resources for people to think about adapting their own practice. But that will take them to a point where they think, actually, we need an intervention on this stairwell. We need an intervention in this park. We need an intervention with this group. And that's when the system needs to hold that practitioner. And that's often what's missing or what we're trying to design and support areas to design. And all the stuff you say just seems like common sense. Like as you're saying it, if anyone ever listens to when you speak, I'm there going, looking around the room, like don't everyone think like this, but they don't. And I think that's where the problem is. We, you know, people are presumed stuff and it isn't like that at all. Sorry, I lost you there for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it, it, oh, it might have been my internet connection. It might yeah. be mine. It might be mine. Um, you talk about, so everyone says, um, everyone says child protection is everyone's, safeguarding is everyone's business. You make a point that just kills the game, right? So, so it's quite easy. Everyone goes, oh, you know, keeping children safe is all our responsibility. What's your flex on that? So that's often been translated as it's everyone's responsibility to look out for children who are being abused and then if you find one you refer them into children's services yep. that's pretty much what happens it's the kind of something if you see something all of that stuff which is really valuable but it doesn't necessarily lead to safety for uh, contextual safeguarding safety being everybody's responsibility is about everyone making safe spaces everyone creating safe spaces if i am running a shop and I think children are being groomed and exploited outside my shop. Right. It's not just my responsibility to find out who each of those children are and phone them in. In fact, like that's pretty impossible. But there are things I can do to build safety in and around my shop, like having conversations with young people so that others are aware that I know these children and I'm engaging with
to them and I don't see them as a nuisance. So this is actually a safe, is how you build safety. It's not, we're not talking about building surveillance around children. We're not talking about everyone kind of intervening in the middle of a fight and, you know, risking their lives. We're talking about building safe and inclusive environments for children. You need to make as many environments safe for young people and hostile to abuse. Yes. Often make environments that are hostile to young people. They're great for abuse. If everyone's looking around a bus terminus just wishing all the young people would go home because they're noisy and antisocial, then that's great for anyone that wants to exploit them because nobody's looking at them as they're vulnerable. Nobody has any concern for their welfare. Nobody really cares. If young people are in a space that will care about their welfare, where they're actively talking to them, engaging them in conversation, or just letting them be, but being, you know, there. These are places which are hostile to abuse, protective of young people. Really, that's what safeguarding being everybody's responsibility is. We're a long way off there in most areas. Um, But that's, you know, we situate child protection in the child protection system. Yeah. So if I'm not in that system, all my job is, is to tell the child protection system that they can't deal with this on their own. You know, nobody could. No, and it, this sort of leads on to my next question, because you're the only person I've seen that raised this. I'm sure have, others have, but I, I listen to you. And you said, oh, brilliant. They now see child sexual exploitation and cri- child criminal exploitation as abuse. Like, well done. Right. They've, they've recognised it as abuse. But just because they've got it recognised doesn't mean there's a system in place to help it. And I see that, I'm not kidding you, Colleen, daily. Daily, I work with children involved in both of them things and there's no bloody system in place. So where are we at? Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, in my book, my most recent book, I use the um, analogy of the transport system that we have in um, the UK. We've got this kind of slogan that we put out um, around terrorism, uh see it say it sorted so you you see something that looks suspicious you tell someone about it and then they will sort it for you and that's very similar to the narrative that emerged around things like sexual exploitation and criminal exploitation which is we need to see something as abusive so i see that that exploitation that i used to say was prostitution or children being little gangsters or whatever I call it I see that now I see that's abuse and then I'm going to say that it's abuse so I'm going to use that language and we're going to put that language in our guidance and we're all going to be using that language in our assessments these are really important steps it you know pushes us beyond victim blaming sometimes you know gives us the right framework these are all really important but what we didn't do was then sort it so we kind of got to so we saw it we said it everyone's telling everyone they've seen it they're sharing that information and everyone assumed it could be sorted even the government assumed it could be sorted there were lots of statements that were put out saying everyone knows if you see this you refer it to children's services schools are aware if you see this you refer it to children's services this narrative that there was a system that could sort it this system doesn't know how to sort it um, in terms of its original design. And so it was always going to be a massive ask of children's services to just automatically know how to take a system that's been designed to work with families and then apply it to a load of contexts and relationships that are not like families. So we're testing contextual safeguarding approaches in 10 formal test sites. And we know 42 local authorities nationally um, 
the senior leadership have signed up to doing contextual safeguarding and developing it. So we know that there's a steady growth in interest, but it will take years uh, to create that type of system. Things that feel like common sense are difficult to achieve, like um, peer assessments. So how that's a bit of a system that needed re redesigning. You know how to assess families. You don't know how to assess young people's friendships. Okay, let's try that. We need that makes sense. If a young person's being abused within a friendship network, we need to be able to assess that friendship. Um, how do we do it? What's the assessment framework? We don't have one. Okay, let's design one. Okay, we'll try that. Uh, okay, well, what's the information sharing agreements around peer assessments? Do we need to tell everyone's parents if their child appears on a peer assessment? What if the parent, that parent doesn't want their child on the peer assessment and they're peripheral anyway? Do we take them off? Or what if they then emerge again later? Should we have kept them on? How long do we keep the peer assessment going for? What if a child's no longer part of that friendship group anymore? Friendship groups change all of them, they're not like families. How, what, what would we call the friendship group on the system? How do we, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So things that feel to the general public, really common sense, like, well, if a child's being abused in a friendship group, we assess the friendship group. Yeah, yeah. When people then try to do it, it gets messy, it's messy very quickly their significant and relevant concerns about surveillance, privacy, the need for not just building these, you know, ginormous maps of children that really haven't got anything to do with this and they're just being netted in because they happen to know someone and they had a burger with them yesterday. The, you know, it, it takes nuance, it takes skill. These things can't just be created overnight, which is why we're doing formal testing. But I think it's an important lesson to people to think just because something feels easy doesn't mean that it is. We, when things are community based, they're easier. You know, we could all gather in a community centre and say, oh, this group of kids that's hanging around, what do we know about them? How could we support them? When you put that into a statutory child protection system, there are a lot of legal duties, requirements that sit around that rightly so because you're talking about state intervention yeah. into someone's life but that then requires much more thinking um and will take time and i think people the, the thing that worries me most is when people say oh yeah we do contextual safeguarding i don't know anywhere that's doing contextual safeguarding i know people that are trying yeah. and we're still learning what it means we're still learning what it means to do a contextual assessment and intervention we don't you know we've got loads of tests and we publish them all so people can see what we learn. Every resource we design and test, we publish it. But these yeah. are all being tested. Um, and everyone has to, I guess, be willing to just be a bit patient and listen and reflect and also identify when things aren't working and, and feeling safe to be honest about that. Yeah. Um, because the child protection system we encountered when we started to develop contextual safeguarding, you know, that's been around for 30 years. Yeah. The contextual safeguarding has been around the, the, the first time I wrote the term yeah. was in 2015 okay. so, and that was just a sentence yeah. um, it's, so it's, it's a long way off being yeah, ready. It's, a, it's mad to think how, how like people will just presume oh they, people could just sort this and you have these um, big organisations that step forward and say hello we're going to solve your gang problem and I just think to myself no you're not because it takes, it takes a lot of people around it and this kind of yeah. So for Blondie, for Blondie's people, obviously you're here because um, now as an adult, 
as to me as an adult because you you have um killed the game in what you do you thought outside the box you looked at something and went well why why you asked the whys and for me there's a big respect there but as a child i think that if somebody done some kind of contextual safeguarding around me i, I don't think i would have gone on to be exploited i'm going to say it i would not have been exploited in the same way but everyone just blamed me and my mum and, and that's why yeah. I, I need you here to speak because i want people to understand this colleen it was not my mum's fault I got exploited and it wasn't my fault. It was my exploiter's fault. And there was no safeguarding, proper contextual safeguarding around me. But do you know what's sad? There's another blondie out there right now, you know, happening to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm really encouraged when I do see practitioners attempting contextual yeah. assessments, because we have seen different decision making um, happen. We've seen children placed into care with a friend in one local authority um, because it was recognized that the friendship wasn't the problem it was the environment they were in and they needed to build a plan around that environment and in the interim place those children together because otherwise they were going to go missing and find each other and that was one yeah. of the most protective things they could do and that felt like a huge risk but that was listening to what the children needed and kind of trying to get all around together on a table on that uh, assessments of local areas where children have been shot um, alongside plans to support them yeah. um, you know uh, interventions with whole whole year groups in yeah. schools uh, you know school policies teacher training to respond to image sharing rather than just targeting individual children that are shared sexually indecent images of other children all of these things case studies are really promising yeah um and encourage uh, you know encourage us to continue to think about how do you embed that in a system like how do you make that business as usual um and that's what we're trying to work out at the moment yeah. with our test sites is how do you make that business as usual and how much does that cost yeah, in the short term yeah. yeah in the short term you know o over time you would hope that it would be cheaper because if yeah. you're intervening with one library instead of the 30 kids that all get groomed there yeah. because they're going there to use the Wi-Fi and do a bit of homework, um, then you've saved yourself 30 individual assessments if you can get it right. But we're a long way off that, having the confidence that that's what we can do. So we're current, at the moment, you end up doing six assessments with the six kids that are most vulnerable and the library assessment. Yes. Um, because you, need, you can't drop the ball on everything while you try and work this new thing out. But in, in time, you would hope, that you would reach yeah. more children and, and end up doing more prevention. If you build safety around the library, you stop the churn of kids that we saw on the stairwell. Um, and that's what we're trying to do um, in time. Yeah. And, and I think it will come from your work. My last comment is gonna be, uh, is this see how you feel about this? So Blondie's people, I've chosen, I think it's 25 people. I've done my research, I found 25 people that brought different elements. I believe that if there was an arms panel, a panel, and you could access not all 25 but 25 or 20 people of different skill sets and you placed them around a child and created a bespoke team that social services would no longer feel that they have the pressure on them and they wouldn't just have a partnership with the police and housing they'd have a partnership with the church with 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 survivors with do you think that my idea is the kind of right way to go or not yeah, absolutely. You know, um, contextual safeguarding is made up of um, four domains, the framework, and we will say that, you know, the system needs to be able to target the context in which abuse occurs. Okay. 
ends of child protection, which outcomes potentially, and then the vision is the need to have the partnerships um, in place to build safety. So who are the people that could have a reach into those places and spaces uh, where the young people are spending their time um, or reach into those young people? Um, so you can't do contextual safeguarding without a broad church. Um, and those partnerships will change depending on the child, the place, yes. the space. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You need, you need, you need street cleaners, you need security staff, you need store attendants, you need library staff, teachers, youth workers, church leaders, um, parents, residents, yeah. young people, everybody, um, has a role to play depending on the child and depending on the circumstance. Um, yeah. and, that's where, and that's where blondies people come from i thought let me find these people that i think i can only use blondie as a case i'm using her as a case study what would have helped her and i brought these people together finally with you and the fact is is that if she had had them people all in one go at different times things would have been different so i think i'm just sort of doing contextual safeguarding not on your level but i'm doing it on a level that i understand <laughs> Thank, thank you so much for coming and speaking because I know you're so busy and just having you part of being Blondie's people means that I don't know I know that I'm speaking to the person I need to speak to and how do people contact you or, or see the stuff that you're doing how does that happen? So if you google contextual safeguarding you can find everything you need we've got the contextual safeguarding program website which has got all of our latest yep. research um, and that's just contextualsafeguarding.org.uk. And then we have a practice network, csnetwork.org.uk, and you can access all of our practice resources um, and videos and that kind of stuff for free. And all of our contact information is up there too. I'm going to put it all down for everyone so they can see it. Colleen, can you say goodbye to all of our viewers? Yeah, lovely spending time with you. Take care, everyone. <laughs>